Okay. The church history course actually is supposed to start on January 25th. For those of you who aren't up on, I I know it's very confusing, but because I was supposed to go to Kiev, I pre-recorded the first class because I would not have returned. And that may change because I may go to Kiev at the end of next week. I don't know. I'm not going to tell anybody anything. Just pray about it because that possibility is there. Okay, and uh, the men's prayer breakfast is on February 13th, and the annual church uh, congregational meeting is February 14th. So keep that in mind. And the Chafer Conference is March 8th through the 10th. And if you plan to attend, please register. And if you plan to volunteer, please register and indicate what you would like to do. Otherwise, you'll be volunteered for something. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we just need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking in fellowship, which is almost redundant because fellowship means a close partnership, and we are in a close partnership with God in developing our spiritual life. We have to uh, walk with him, but when we sin, we're no longer walking with him, so we need to confess sin, and just as a, just in silent prayer, to God the Father, and instantly when we confess, admit, acknowledge that sin, then we are forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. It is sufficient. It is enough. It gives us all of the information we need to face and handle any problem we may face in life, any challenge, any, any temptation, any difficulty. problem for most of us is we just don't think deeply enough about your word to figure out how it relates to the everyday problems in a modern world, but it does. And Father, the problems just may get a little more complex, but they're still the same old problems and we still have the same old sin nature that Adam had or Noah or Abraham or Peter and your grace is sufficient for any problem that we face. Father, as we study your word, we come to see many insights into what is going on in our world today. 
basically things, the trappings may have changed, but the core problems have not. And as we study Judges, we'll see a window into our own world, even though we're talking about events uh, from so very long ago, 1200, 1300 B.C. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, you would enlighten us, God the Holy Spirit would help us to see, to have the objectivity and the humility to see where we are following the wrong path, where we're thinking in wrong terms, and that we might have the humility to correct under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Okay, tonight we are going to do another intro. There's going to be three or four intro messages just to get the basic framework for uh, the book of Judges. So tonight I'm addressing the question is, why should we study Judges? As I pointed out last time, this is not one of those most popular books. It's sort of like Ecclesiastes or Obadiah, uh, maybe some of the other minor prophets that usually don't get opened a whole lot by people in church, and yet they're Uh, filled with uh, tremendous insight. And Judges is one of those because the problems that Israel faced in terms of their spiritual life and in terms of the spiritual life of the nation are no different than the problems we are facing today. In fact, I think that the problems we face today are so similar to the ones that they faced in 1200, 1300 B.C. that it's almost scary And I don't think that a lot of this would have necessarily been as perhaps as significant for somebody 150 or 200 years ago because they weren't living in such a uh, morally relativistic culture. Although, as I'm going to point out tonight, moral relativism was embedded in the very first sin. So it is part of the rationale of our lovely sin natures. So tonight I want to look at why study Judges, and we're going to look at how it fits within the flow of God's revelation. It is important to understand that when we read the Bible, everything we read in the Bible is in a context. You look at a verse, that verse is in the context of a paragraph, that paragraph is in the context of a section or subsection of a book, and that is in the context of a larger section and within the context of a book. And we look at Judges, or let's say we look at uh, 1st or 2nd Samuel, very, very similar context. We can look at Daniel, that's a totally different context, that's a context of a, uh, a Jewish aristocrat who's been taken captive back to Babylon, a Jewish aristocrat taken back to Babylon, and he's having to figure out how to live his life in the midst of an extremely pagan environment that is hostile to everything that he believes. And there are a lot of parallels and a lot of lessons to learn from Daniel about us. Or you can look at at uh, any other book of the Bible, that everything has a certain context, and so it's important to look at those things. So we'll start just by looking at uh, the key verse and the key verses to, uh, we'll say, in, in Judges. Last verse in Judges, Judges 29, 21, 25, rather, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Now, it's interesting is this comes at the end of the book. One of the popular views that you run into among scholars is that this is a setup, a setup for what's going to come in Samuel. That, that period immediately follows. In fact, the first part of 1 Samuel, if you remember, is in the period of the judges. Eli, the high priest, was a judge. Samuel was a prophet, a priest, and a judge. And you have a period before the reign of Saul, before Saul is elevated to the kingship, that is in this same period. In fact, uh, we'll eventually see the overlap in the chronology that more than likely uh, the judgeship of Jephthah, which is covered in Judges 11, the judgeship of Samson, the judgeship of, of Samuel, all overlap. They were just in different parts of Israel. So you you see that there's this this broad context that that sets sets up this stage. And there are those that say that what this is doing is setting up the need for First Samuel and preparing us for the wonderful things that the king is going to do. King didn't do so many wonderful things. We'll come back next time and talk about kingship and how it fits with the uh, framework of government. There's so much in uh, in judge, the book of Judges that deals with political theory. And that's important to understand. Judges, parts of Judges, but especially 1 Samuel chapter 8, were frequently quoted passages in, by the founding fathers uh, of America. They were, they were some of the others, as well as in the book of Exodus, those areas and Deuteronomy. Exodus, Deuteronomy, some from Judges and a lot from 1 Samuel chapter 8 were very much a part of their, uh, their thinking according to the studies of a professor at the University of Houston in the mid-80s by the name of Donald Lutz. And he published his studies in a couple of journals, and categorized all of the various references in the writings of the American uh, founding fathers. You looked at their diaries, looked at sermons, looked at things they wrote, treatises, all kinds of different things, and classified how many times were there quotes from John Locke or from Montesquieu or from any number of other sources and discovered that the vast majority, which outnumbered all of the others combined, were references to the Bible. Number two was John Locke, and many of the references in John Locke were simply paraphrases of the Bible because Locke um, wrote more about the Bible than he did about philosophy and and um, and political philosophy. The same same thing uh, was true about several other Enlightenment thinkers like like Newton. And Newton wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. Uh, we think of Newton and his discovery of the law of of uh, gravity. But he wrote a tremendous amount about the Bible. The, this this was uh, part of what was going on in that era. They were very well-educated men and very well-read and informed informed men. And so um, th- there is embedded within this v- different uh, views on uh, political theory that have been mined by many over the years and really did play a huge role within the Reformed 
school of thought uh, influenced Lutherans. We've talked uh, in the past about some of the uh, different things that happened in the religious wars in Germany. And so it it affected Lutheran theology, it affected uh, Calvin's theology, things of that nature in terms of their political viewpoints that were brought over to the United States at the time, just the colonies in the 1600s and uh, and 1700s. The Magdeburg Confession was rich with references to Scripture. That was a Lutheran document. So what we read here is in those days there's no king in Israel. Now this is really a, a double entendre. It has two meanings. There's no king. There's no physical king. It's before Saul. So that helps us to date when these events happened. But it's not really talking about the human king. That I think is an error that a lot of uh, commentators make when they come to a study of Judges. The king in Israel in this time is supposed to be God. It is a theocracy where God is the head of the government as it's laid out within the uh, Mosaic law, the covenant uh, that God made at Sinai. And so they had rejected God as king. You'll see that. I read some of these passages last week in Judges 2 where it talks about that they, they abandoned God they turned their back on God, and they turned to the idols, and that was the big uh, big problem. So uh, they've rejected God as their king and the source of ultimate authority and values and meaning and significance in Israel, and its place they substituted themselves. And that always happens. Whenever you reject somebody who's in authority, 99% of the time we're substituting ourselves for that person who's in authority because we think that we know better than they do. And so that gives us the right to not follow them, not obey them, not do what they what they want us to do. And in a truly antinomian culture, now that's a word that is not user-friendly for a lot of people. It means against the law. Anti meaning against. Namas is the Greek word for law. And this refers to a lawless culture where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes and they're going to redefine the law. They're going to redefine the, the morals. They're going to redefine everything according to whatever they want at the moment. But next week it may be something different because every, everything is fluid. So Judges 21-25, the last verse, makes these two points. There's no king in Israel, and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. There are three other verses near the end of Judges that uh, have similar statements. Judges 17-6 states, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did uh, what was right in in his own eyes. So that's just a, a complete... Uh, it says exactly the same thing as as the last verse in twenty one twenty five. Now, what's important is when you look at the structure of, of Judges, that you have the story that some scholars refer to as the Book of Deliverers, from Othniel in Judges chapter three to the end of Judges sixteen with the story of Samson. That during this this that goes through all the major all the major uh, judges. And then 17.6 begins, uh, 
with this phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. And so some people, when they look at this, because there's all kinds of controversy over the chronology in, in Judges, are, are looking at this and thinking that this is really relating to what comes after. And there are some people who look at a chronological order between 16 and 17, but actually these events at the end, 17 and 18, that's one event, 19, uh, 20, or 17 through 19 is one event, 2021 is another event. These are appendices or um, that that basically describe what is going on among the people during the broader period, probably 250 to 300 years of the period of the judges. And so they're describing this relativism, this antinomianism, this rejection of divine authority, and making sure that the reader understands uh, all through this these this end part that this is the same thing that's going on all the way through uh, the book the book of judges so that sets up the context and uh, what develops in this book in judges is uh, the deterioration and the degradation of a nation spiritually. You just track it. It's the pathology of self-destruction spiritually. And if you want a how-to manual, this would be almost the how-to manual of how a nation goes from being spiritually victorious at the beginning. They have conquered the Canaanites in terms of the major strongholds. They haven't taken out everybody in the smaller towns and villages, but they have defeated the major uh, the major strongholds, and then they start breaking down. They compromise. They don't complete the job, and as a result, they end up uh, living with the Canaanites and assimilating into their views the pagan religions of the Canaanites. And these are some of the most horrific religious practices in all of the ancient world. The Canaanites were pa- practicing uh, extremely degraded sexual promiscuity in the uh, worship of their fertility gods and just horrific things that were being done. You went to one of the one of the temples, and there were temple prostitutes, male and female. And so this was just a, a terribly degrading thing. Also, they practiced child sacrifice, and that could be a child all the way up to five or six years of age. Uh, and this is a backdrop for understanding what happens with Jephthah. It was just a, a extremely dark, degrading time in the in the history of, uh, of of Israel. So, to understand it, I think we need to look at the context, and it fits within the context of the Old Testament. As I said, every context has paragraphs, paragraphs in sections, sections in in uh, broader sections of a book, and then the book is part of something larger. What we have in the first part of of the Bible is what's called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is a term that refers to five scrolls or five books, the penta meaning five from the Greek word, and tukas meaning scroll or or book. 
And then that is followed by, those are all written by Moses, the five, call, sometimes called the five books of Moses, sometimes called the Torah, which is the word for the law, which is a large section, the last half of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, parts of Deuteronomy. These are all part of the, the law. And then, of course, I mean, uh, the, uh, Leviticus, uh, some parts of Numbers, and then, of course, all of Deuteronomy would fit within that. Uh, would would fit within that context. And so uh, we have to understand why it goes from the Pentateuch, then we have Joshua. We start what is called in the Hebrew Bible, they're the early prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, you have three divisions. You have the Torah, the first five books. Then you have the the prophets, the Nevi'im, and that's composed of the former prophets and the latter prophets. So we usually think of the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 as the prophets. But in Israel, they recognized Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. These were all written by prophets. So they're the former prophets, and then you have the latter prophets. So it, you have the Pentateuch, and then that's followed by the former prophets. What is really going on here? And so we see that the context of Judges is in the post-conquest period following the book of, of uh, Joshua. Okay, so, and it comes before Samuel. Samuel is when we have the first king, Saul, and followed by David, and you have the united monarchy up through the first eight or nine chapters of First Kings. So how does Judges fit within this, this particular section? So we're talking about a period that is roughly from 1406 B.C. until uh, about 1050 B.C. Usually the reign of Saul is, is figured to be somewhere around 1050 B.C., 1446, 1447 is the date of the Exodus. Then uh, you have forty year, you have one year to Sinai. Then you have forty years in the um, in the wilderness, and that takes you to 1406. That's the beginning of the conquest. Conquest took about forty years, so that takes you to about 1366. So 1366 to uh, 1150 is technically the period of the judges, although the book of Judges starts in the conquest. It's reviewing things in the conquest in the first chapter, so it really is going from uh, 1406 all the way uh, to about 1050. And that is called also the pre-exilic, it's part of the pre-exilic period before the exile. That's what happens 722, the northern kingdom is taken out of the land. They go into exile. Uh, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom uh, goes uh, is defeated by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and they are taken, <clears throat> taken out of the land. So the broader context is that Judges is sandwiched between the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then the early, early monarchy. Now, a major principle in interpretation of Scripture is that all Scripture has to be interpreted in the time in which it was written. Now, that doesn't mean that it's uh, necessarily, well, they did it that way then, we do it a different way now. That's not what that means. It means that you have certain words, phrases, terms, certain 
uh, things that are going on culturally that are distinct to a certain period of time. And so you have to understand how that shapes words. You can look at words that are used by Moses in the early part of Genesis that are used a thousand years later by other writers, and they don't have quite the same meaning. Just as we have, for example, in the King James Version, the authorized version, you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about charity. Modern translation will translate that as love. So between uh, the early part of the 1600s and the 20th century, that wor- those words change their meaning. So that happens in the Bible. So you have to understand that framework. You have to go back and you have to do word studies and you have to understand when different documents were written and, and deal with those things within their, their context and within their, uh, within their framework. So what we see here is this period that is cut out from just almost the end of the conquest, even though it summarizes it in the first chapter, it picks up there and shows what is happening in the nation uh, during this time from, uh, let's say, roughly 1360 to 1050. So that's a period of roughly 300 years. And I'm not about to go into all of the chronological issues that are developed here. We'll just summarize that. They'll, they, nobody's got it settled. I'll, I'll just say that. There's all kinds of theories. And that's because these judges did not, they, they were not over all of Israel. Some were in the southwest, and they're dealing with the Philistines like uh, Samson other, and later Samuel. Others are in the north. Others are in the east or in the Transjordan, and they're overlapping. Jephthah and Samuel and Samson are all have lives that that overlap with one another. So it's trying to figure out how that jigsaw puzzle uh, fits together. But we want to start with to get the context. We want to start with the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And the, they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Genesis is the book that means uh, beginnings. The Latin term is uh, Genesis, means beginnings, but it's based on the Hebrew. The very first, uh, in the Pentateuch, the, the, the titles for each of the books come from the first word or first couple of words in the first first verse first chapter the first word in uh in genesis is bereshit in the beginning so it's just called the book of beginnings and it is the book of beginnings you have the beginning of the universe you have the beginning of adam and eve you have the beginning of sin you have the beginning of redemption you have the beginning of of uh, uh, marriage, you have the beginning of family, you have the first judgments on sin, all of these things. But Genesis is real easy to organize in your in your mind. It's comprised of two sections. The first section focuses on four events, and this is the primeval history of mankind, of the human race. This is chapters 1 through 11. And then the second section focuses on four people. This is the patriarchal history of Israel. Now, if you look at Genesis, it has 50 chapters. That first division, those four events are covered in 11 chapters. And then from chapter 12 through chapter 50, you have the four people. Now, what do you think is the most important section in the book of Genesis? 
It's, it's called the law of proportionality. If God is going to spend uh, something like 37, 38 chapters on these four people, then they're obviously more important than the four events, at least to some degree. The four events are, of course, some of the foundational events that shape human history. So these four events are the creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of the earth, then second, the fall of man, his fall into sin. The third, you have the worldwide flood of Noah, the judgment on the sin of the uh, generation of, of Noah and those before because of the angelic infiltration in Genesis chapter 6. And then the Tower of Babel, the judgment at the Tower, uh, at the Tower of Babel. Now we know from Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen that all Scripture is breathed out by God, not inspired in the sense of a uh, of a musician or inspired in the sense of a poet or a writer or an artist, but inspired in the sense that God originated the words of Scripture. He breathes them out. It's not dictation. Uh, although there's maybe some parts of Scripture that are dictation, such as some parts of the, the Mosaic Law uh, were dictated or written by God. But but for the most part, God is working like a hand in a glove, guiding, directing the very thoughts, the words, the phrases that the writers of Scripture used. And what we know from that and what we can de- uh, develop from that is that God has selected the events and the people that he's going to tell us about, that he thinks are important for the history of the world and that are significant for our spiritual life. So that if you look at that period from Adam to uh, the flood, that is roughly a period of 2,000 years. And during that period of time, there were maybe 3 or 4 billion people on the planet because those people lived... 900, 950 years, and you had as many as 15 or 16 generations living at the same time, maybe more, and so that makes your population really expand. So during that period of time, you have a huge number of people, and a lot of things happened in 2,000 years. Just think about how many things have happened since Jesus Christ was crucified. That's 2,000 years ago. Think about how many things have happened. God only tells us, really gives us details on four things that happened during that time period. That's not much, so we're relatively in the dark about those first 2,000 years. But God tells us what's important for us to know, enough to where we can form a framework for understanding uh, the rest of Scripture and apply things to, to life. So you have this period uh, at that time, and then afterwards, you have a lot of other civilizations and cities and people and places that seem significant at the time. You have the rise and development of Egyptian civilization and all of the pharaohs, but the Bible is pretty much silent on most of them. But God tells us about who's important, and it's four men that are virtually unknown by anybody else who lived at their time. And they are Abraham and his son Isaac and his son uh, Jacob and one of his 12 sons, Joseph. Now, Joseph did become well-known in Egypt because he's the one who came in and, 
and uh, saved Pharaoh and saved Egypt during the time of the seven-year famine. So he is known, but he was probably known by his Egyptian name and not by his, by his Hebrew name. And God tells us that they are important because of what God is doing uh, in and through them. Remember what has happened in the first part is there's just this complete collapse of civilization. God is working with everyone. And in the first part, from the creation to the flood, then you have this world, this boom in population, but God looks on the human race and says every thought of their hearts was evil continuously. And because of the satanic incursion with the sons of God taking wives from the daughters of men, you have this hybrid race that develops that is an attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. And so God knows it is necessary to kill, wipe out all but eight of those people who are on the surface of the planet at that time in order to preserve the seed of the woman and its purity through whom the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come. And after the flood, what happens? Well, let me go back to one thing. What happens between the fall and the flood? You can characterize that whole period that because they're doing evil continually, everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody is rejecting God's authority, rejecting God's revelation, however it was manifested during that time, and they're going to run their life according to their own desires and dictates. That is the same thing that we see in the phrase in in Judges that everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And then what happens? Then you have the flood, and after the flood, the man begins to spread out, but not as much as God has intended, and the vast majority of them seem to congregate in the area of Babel, what it later becomes Babylon on the uh, Euphrates River. And they build a ziggurat or a tower with the idea that we're going to reach to God, and maybe part of their thinking was if we build it high enough, if God wants to strike us with another flood, we'll be high enough that we'll survive But what's happening again is they're rejecting the authority of God and they are doing what's right in their their own eyes. And so at that time, God comes down and he's going to, in order to preserve the human race, he's going to scatter the languages. And so everybody's going to have to go in different directions because they can't understand each other. They're going to congregate with others whose language they can understand. And that sets the stage for what God's going to do next. Instead of working through all of the human race, he's now going to work through one specific individual and his descendants. So that takes us to the uh, second half where we're going to look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so God is going to call out Abraham. And he calls out Abraham and he makes this promise to Abraham that he is going to bless him. He's going to bless him with descendants that are going to be as innumerable as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And he is, God is graciously blessing Abraham. Now, Abraham's salvation isn't dependent upon obeying God. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in Romans 4 to show that our justification before God is not on the basis of our morality, our goodness, or anything that we've done because, as Isaiah says, all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves. There's nothing that we can do uh, to make ourselves acceptable to God. God has to do it for us. And so there's the promise of future salvation. Abraham believed that. And God accounted that to him as righteousness, clothes him with righteousness, and that is the basis for his salvation. But just because you're saved doesn't mean you can just be frivolous and disobedient and do whatever you want to do, do whatever you think is right in your own eyes. And so Abraham still has to struggle with sin. And so there are several times when he has some notable sins in his life, but eventually he begins to understand that that God is the one who will fulfill his promise and provide a son through Sarah, and that is that's the line of the seed. And so uh, the story in Genesis continues to go through uh, developing the promise, and each time you have another son born, whether it's Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, God reconfirms the Abrahamic covenant with them that God is going to make from them a a mighty nation, that they will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore, and God is going to give this piece of real estate to the Jewish people in perpetuity. It's not conditioned upon anything. Now, their enjoyment of the land is going to be conditioned on obedience, but their right to the land is con- is conditioned on God's grace. He has freely given that, uh, given that to them, and so again we see God trace His path of blessing through Abraham and his descendants, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, and that God is going to bless the entire human race through them, and it's through them and their descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul points out in Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, 16, that God is going to solve the problem of sin, and it is through this one man and his descendants that God is going to bless the entire human race. So God lays the foundation here in Genesis for understanding that blessing comes from God uh, to those who walk with him. Salvation is not on the basis of walking with God. Salvation is on the basis of believing God. And he will credit it to you as righteousness. Then once you're saved, then you have to live in light of your new position. And so walking with God is also based on faith, but it's different from getting saved, as we'll see in just a minute. And so at the end of Genesis, all of Jacob's sons and their families have all been brought by God from the promised land where they lived up near Beersheba and and Shechem and has brought them all down to Egypt because God is going to provide for them and protect them. He's really isolating them because these boys were really bad. I mean, they just loved doing what was right in their own eyes. And they are intermarrying with the Canaanites, which they weren't supposed to do. And they were, ge- they were on the verge of disappearing into the Canaanite culture 
because of their disobedience to God. So God's going to bring them all down to Egypt, and they're going to be in the land of Goshen, and the Egyptians have this horrible um, prejudice against the Semites, and they don't want to have any, they don't want to even sit at the same table and eat dinner with them. They don't want to have anything to do with them, and so God is using that to protect them and to isolate. Uh, Israel so that the nation can flourish and God will bless them and they will explode. But they've got to get out of Egypt. And that's the next book, Exodus, which is about their exit from, uh, from Egypt. And God is going to take them from Egypt through a series of judgments that he is going to bring against the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to uh, are going to resist God. Uh, Pharaoh will harden his own heart. And then, you know, he has made that decision. He's already a God. He's rejected God. He's rejected all uh, information about God. And then God is going to harden his heart or strengthen his heart to do what he wants to. Even when t- it gets difficult because of the intensity of these plagues, God is going to strengthen his resolve to do what he's going to do so that God can glorify himself in the redemption. That doesn't have anything to do with his salvation. He's already made his choice. and uh, But it does have to do with God uh, <clears throat> in just strengthening his resolve in, that, in the wrong direction. And so the events in Exodus take place some 400 years or so after the promise to Abraham. And the people are now enslaved in Egypt, but God in his grace will deliver them. So again, we have the message of grace. He will deliver them. He will redeem them. He will purchase them. And the purchase price is that what occurs in the 10th plague. God has designed the 10th plague where he will take the life of the firstborn in every house, but the solution is going to be a sacrifice of a lamb that is without spot or blemish, and then the application of the blood, which signifies the death of the lamb, to the doorposts and the crosspiece at the top of the house, signifying that everybody in that house is under the blood or is protected by the death of that sacrificial lamb. And that it becomes the background to Passover. And, of course, it is looking forward to the future cross of Christ where he will, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, will die on the cross as our substitute and for our sins. So we see these great pictures of grace. But then we also see in the midst of that that there is going to be sin and rebellion. So the Israelites are delivered. They're redeemed from slavery. They escape after the 10th plague. They cross the Red Sea. They go down to uh, Mount Sinai. And there something really interesting happens, that they're going to spend a year there, but God is going to speak to them from Mount Sinai. They're going to hear his voice. And it will put fear into them, trembling. They tell Moses, no, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You go up on the mountain, you write down whatever he tells you, then come back and tell us, but we don't want to listen to the voice of God anymore. And there's some just some great things and pictures that go on there. But one of the things that God tells them before he gives them the Ten Commandments, before he gives them the law, before he lays all that down, God is going to 
uh, tell them something, that he is giving them a covenant. And he says in Exodus 19, verse 5, he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, what's important is the rest of it. See, God has already saved them. He's already redeemed them from slavery. That was a free gift. That is equivalent to our salvation. They weren't saved or delivered from their slavery to Egypt by obeying the law. That was God's grace. We're not saved from the slavery to sin by keeping the law or by being obedient. We're saved by trusting in God to deliver us. But once we're saved, then God gives us a new standard for living, a new protocol for living. And this is what's going to take place on Mount Sinai. God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, we've studied this word holy a lot, that holy doesn't have as its core idea the idea of moral purity. It has as its core idea being separated to the service of God. Uh, And in a lot of ways, when it applies to God, God is holy. He is significant. He is important. He is that without which we cannot do. He is vital. And so when we glorify God, that's what we are doing because he is unique and distinct we are going to show that he is important and that he must be followed. And that is what it means to glorify him. So glorifying God is related to that concept of holiness, that he is, he is distinct and unique. And he's going to make them a holy nation. That is, they're going to be different from all the other nations. doesn't mean they're going to be morally pure because God hasn't removed sin natures from them. It means that they're going to be distinct. And how are they going to be distinct? They're going to be a kingdom of priests. Just as the Levitical tribe were the priests to all of Israel, so Israel is going to be the priest nation for the rest of the world. They're the ones through whom the sacrifice for sin will come. Now, this is important because it recognizes, again, that the problem with man is sin Because man wants to do it his own way. He wants to make up his own rules, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. God said, don't uh, eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They wanted to determine for themselves what good and evil were. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And so we've seen from the very beginning that this is essential to the evil of the sin nature, that man wants to reject the authority of God and in its place set himself up as the final arbiter of truth, the final determiner of what is right and what is wrong, and every man will do what is right in their own eyes. So this isn't something that's going to be unique to the time of the judges. It goes back to the core of the corrupts in nature uh, within er- every one of us. And so what happens is that God is going to give a covenant to Israel on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are just like the prelude. We have a prelude to the, to the uh, Constitution. This is a prelude to their law code. And it's Ten Commandments. And the rest of the laws all show how those, those ten, literally ten words in the Hebrew, how those ten commandments are to be applied in a variety of different uh, different circumstances. And so when you look at 
the Mosaic Law and its 613 commandments. 603 of them are applications of the Ten Commandments at the very beginning. But these standards in the law are designed to teach Israel about the uniqueness of their nation, how to live as a kingdom of priests, how they are going to be different, distinct from all of the other nations on the earth. And the way God designed it in the Old Testament is that he gives them this piece of real estate that is in the crossroads of all the uh, trade routes in the ancient world. And so all the traders coming from Turkey, coming from Egypt, coming from Assyria, coming from Babylon, all of them are going to have to cross right there in the middle of this real estate that God has given them. And so they're going to set up a kingdom that is going to be radically different from the way any other kingdom works and operates. And, and in, the most, in, uh, in Deuteronomy, God says that the, the Gentiles will come and they'll see, has there ever been a nation like this nation? They will see how they live. They will see the freedom, the prosperity, the spirituality of Israel, and they will say, how can we be like this? That's how they were to be a witness to the world. But what happens is that because they rebel against God and they do what is right in their own eyes, that never really happens except perhaps in the time of Solomon. When the queen of Sheba comes, that's, that's the idea. She hears about the glory of Solomon's kingdom when he's walking with God and everything has been done well. Then she comes because she sees the difference and she wants to learn about that. And that was God's model in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And so Israel was supposed to be this model nation, but they had to do it God's way. If they were going to experience blessing, that blessing had to come by obedience to the law. Not their salvation, not their chosen status before God. That's uh, analogous to salvation. But they were to live as God uh, God was describing so that they could glorify God. But even from the beginning, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the covenant, what's happening down below? The people get bored after 40 days, and they uh, convince Aaron to build an idol and then they're going to worship the idol. What have they done? They've rejected Moses and God as their authority, and they're going to do what's right in their own eyes. And they are uh, abandoning God, which is the language used in Judges. They're abandoning God and turning to idols. And so this becomes such a standard. But what they learn when they get the law is that God is still a God of grace and forgiveness. Because in the law, you have the tabernacle, you have the altar, you have the sacrifices, and God describes how they can be cleansed of sin, how they can be forgiven of sins, and how they can be, uh, how they can be redeemed uh, by trusting in God. And so you see this, this theme that continues to go through the Pentateuch of God's grace, even when the people are... Uh, disobedient. So you have these basic lessons that continue to go through here that God is in control and God determines what right and wrong are. He is the ultimate reference point. He is the one who is absolute righteous and inherently righteous. And the second thing that is learned is that God's grace provides the only solution. We can't earn or merit God's, God's grace, but he freely provides the solution, and we are to simply trust in him, typo there, simply trust in him. 
And we learn third that salvation was not by the law. The law was given to teach them how a saved person uh, was to live. So this is the first two books, but it continues as you get into the next two, uh, Numbers and Leviticus. And this is a time of their wandering in the in the wilderness. We learn about their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea, and God is going to judge their sin. They're scared to death. They disobey God. Again, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And God says, I was going to give that to you. I'd already promised it to you and your disobedience. So now your generation is going to have to stay in the desert until they all die off. And then your children will be the ones who will enter the land and will receive the inheritance. And so this is their great act of disobedience, a great act of punishment. And only two are allowed to go in, and that's Joshua and Caleb. So again, Israel has to learn this same lesson that God sets the standards. He's the one who determines what right and wrong are. Failure means divine discipline, but they continue to rebel against God and they continue to want to define reality in their own terms. And what this does is it just delays God's blessing. So instead of that generation receiving the blessing of the promised land, they're, gonna, they're going to have to go through the, this 40 years in the wilderness, and they'll all die off, and then their children will go in. And we see, again, it is unbelief, it is moral relativism, it is man determining what is right or wrong rather than God determining what is right and wrong, and they keep turning to other gods. And every time you and I say, I'm not going to do what God says to do. We're setting ourselves up as a judge over God. We're, we're in moral relativism, and we're doing the same thing that they did. So God in his grace continues to provide cleansing from sin, forgiveness, and yet there are consequences. And so Moses is not allowed to go into the land, but he gives them his parting instructions and warnings in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, he reminds them of all the stipulations of the law. But then you come to the end of Deuteronomy in chapters 28 to 33, which is the strongest backdrop to what comes in the subsequent books, because there he outlines the curses, the judgments that God's going to bring on Israel, and also the blessings. But the bottom line is rather pessimistic because he says, ultimately, you're going to be so disobedient to God, he's going to take you out of the land. But... Eventually, you will turn to God. He will fulfill all of his promises, and he will restore you to the land and establish, uh, establish the kingdom. So these are the things that, that are taught in all of these books. But it's not a lesson that is learned. So what happens after you get through, through the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is taken to be with the Lord in paradise, and then what happens is you have the conquest. This is the end of the introduction to the Bible, basically, and the beginning of, of history with Joshua and Judges. Joshua is a very positive book. There are some episodes that are negative, episodes with Achan's sin, uh, the defeat of the uh, Israelite army before I. And these things that happen, but there's the illustration of God's grace, his forgiveness. He gives Israel victory, and 
for the most part, they are trusting God to give them the victory over all of the Canaanite enemies. And at the end of Joshua, it is a time of victory. So Joshua is a very positive book from that perspective. Uh, there's little rebellion against God. They are a, a generation that trusts God. They are the the conquest generation, the descendants of those rebels. They saw their parents and they understood the discipline that they had and learned from it, which is rare. And so Joshua then, uh, that brings us up to the beginning of Judges. And Judges chapter 1 is sort of a summary of the conquest and how it started well, but it doesn't end so well because of their their compromise. Where Joshua is the bright side, Judges is the dark side. Judges is a picture of the collapse of a godly nation, a nation walking with God, trusting in God for their great victories, and what we're going to see is incredible defeats in divine discipline over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Why is Judges written? First of all, Judges is written to provide a very dark illustration of what happens to the human race, to a nation, to individuals, to families and businesses, when a nation acts independently of God. When we turn our back on God and decide we know better and we can make up our own code of conduct, our own sense of right and wrong, and it is not based on the Bible or what God says. When we decide that it is right that we have same-sex marriage when God says that it is wrong, when we say that it is right for the government to take more than a legitimate amount from people in order to give it to everybody else so everybody has the same income, that is a violation of individual responsibility, and historically that destroys motivation and incentive and it destroys a a work ethic, and it destroys the quality and production of a civilization. So when a nation acts independently of God and they rewrite the rules, the end result is always disastrous, and it always has been. The second thing, that's the first thing, sorry I didn't put that slide up. The second thing is Judges also shows that again and again, the people can turn back to God. They never out his grace. Their sin is never too great for God's grace. Now, they're going to go under severe divine discipline. They will be oppressed by foreign powers again and again, sometimes shorter periods, sometimes longer period. But when they turn back to God, God always provides a deliverer. God answers their prayer. There is cleansing and recovery from sin. But then what happens is once all the problems are solved, then they just go back to repeating the situation. They fail the test of prosperity. And we see that every day in our culture, and we see it every day in our own lives, where when things are going good, uh, sometimes I can tell when things are tough, when culture is is unstable, when the economy is turning south, more and more people will be coming to church because they want solutions. 
But once everything smooths out and everything's pretty good, then they don't show up at church anymore. They're not so dependent upon God. And so this is a cycle that we see over and over again in the book of Judges. It emphasizes their failure because they're determining what right and wrong is instead of God. But God will forgive them and God in his grace will provide for them. But there are always longer lasting consequences. We don't get away with sin without those consequences. The third thing is Judges is written to show us God's grace. That no matter how rebellious and depraved the nation became, no matter how depraved her leaders were, God would always meet them where they were and forgive them and bring them back. That doesn't give you a basis for rationalization. It was never a good thing. But the good thing is no matter how bad you failed, no matter how sinful you've become, no matter how corrupt you are, no matter what terrible things you've done, if you're still alive, God has a plan for your life and God will forgive you. And you may have, you may have lost many options in your life because of bad decisions. But God is going to still forgive you, and you still have an opportunity to grow spiritually, but you will have forfeited many blessings and many opportunities that would have been yours if you had only walked with the Lord. And that's what we see illustrated again and and again in the book of Judges. And the fourth thing is that it shows that God is always faithful to us even when we are faithless. God always is true to his word. God is true to the covenant with Abraham. God is true to the covenant that he made with Moses. God is not going to go back on his word. And he is always there. And the term for his faithfulness that we see again and again in the Psalms is the Hebrew word chesed, which means a faithful, loyal love. He is loyal to his side of the contract. And he is always going to fulfill his obligations. And so that's the lesson in Judges. Judges ends on a horrible note. Uh, the, the city, the, I mean, Israel's in, in civil war. They almost annihilate one of the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. And it is on a very low note. And it is at that same time or within that same time period that the book of Samuel opens. And if you remember, it opens in a situation where there is a man, Elkanah, who has two wives, Hannah and Penina. And Penina is is, uh, uh, ridiculing and berating Hannah because Hannah can't have a child. She's barren. And Hannah is something of a picture of Israel who's barren spiritually at that time. And Penina is something of a picture of the Philistines who are um, taking advantage of Israel at the time. And Hannah cries out to God to deliver her by letting her have a child and that she will dedicate that child to God. And this is the same thing that happens in Israel at that time. Finally, they turn to God and will look to him. And it is through that child, as she says in Hannah's song there, song in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 
that she has the insight that God has given her, that it is through the son that she has Samuel who will anoint David, that it is through that connection that the ultimate redeemer will come to Israel. And so you see God's grace that shines through with Israel even in their darkest time. And so we have to learn from that and be encouraged from that, that that there are solid believers who lived in dark times in Israel's history. And yet God blessed them in rich ways and individually they had great opportunities to be a witness to the Lord and great opportunities to teach the word to their children and grandchildren and turn things around. And so even though we may live in a time when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, there are, to borrow a phrase from the later time of Elisha that is very similar, there are 7,000, as it were, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are hundreds of thousands, several million Bible-believing Christians in this nation that are the, the basis of hope for the future. We don't know where they are, but they're there, and they're having their impact. And the issue for us is, are we going to be part of that uh, that crowd or not? Are we going to be part of that uh, group of mature believers that will be eventually a, a pivot on which the, the future history of this nation turns? There's always one exception. Some generation is going to be the raptured generation, And that may be ours. It may not be ours. There may be a future turning of this nation. There may not be a future turning of this nation. But the only hope for this nation, it's not social programs. It's not social justice. It's not a change in income tax laws. It's not one political party or the other political party. It is for this nation to turn back to that which was the foundation for this country, which is the word of God and the truth of God's word. And that is the only hope for stability and for a future in this nation because without God, any prosperity is meaningless. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to review this context to help us understand how Judges fits within the flow of human history, picturing the very dark side. And always in sin, we're always doing what's right in our own eyes and not obeying you. And the consequences are judgment unless, and of course, you're gracious to us in forgiving us, cleansing us of our sins, and uh, restoring us to a position of service and usefulness. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we study. Give us insight into how our culture imitates the pagan culture of Israel in their rebellion in the Old Testament, and help us to see how we can protect ourselves, our thinking, our children, our grandchildren from the horrible and devastating consequences of paganism that is all around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.